Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, how can you tell that the drummer's stool isn't level? Because he's only drooling out of one side of his mouth. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from pop star Rick Astley. Mm. Yes, that Rick Astley. That'll help break the ice. He'll be back later in the show to tell us how he, you know, rolls. Uh, Plus, Nick Offerman, beloved star of the TV shows Parks and Recreation and Fargo, stops by to answer your etiquette questions and to tell us about Hollywood. Emphasis on wood. That's right. And as if that weren't enough, there is more. Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minaj shares the tale of how his proposal became a counterproposal. We hear a new song from Amber Kaufman, and we talk with writer Emily Witt about her book Future Sex. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The FBI has discovered new emails related to the Hillary Clinton private email server investigation. Once again, those protesting a pipeline slated to cross traditional Indian lands clashed with police. The cops win the World Series! Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Lauren Ober. She is the host of NPR's The Big Listen, uh, a wonderful show about podcasts and other fun things. And Lauren, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? So in Forbes magazine uh, online, there was this article um, about how Arby's is starting to sell deer meat sandwiches. Really? Only Mm. in select locations where deer hunting is popular. So in six of the states where there are Arby's restaurants, they are going to be serving up. Get this. I know that since you guys are culinarians, you will appreciate (laughs) that this is not just any venison steak. This is a sous vide venison steak marinated in garlic and served on a bun with crispy onion rings and a juniper berry sauce. That's the weird part. You know, like deer meat, <laughs> let's talk about that in a second, but sous vide at Arby's? Yeah, they just like yeah. up their game beyond out of the stadium. Is that for right. real? Or are they just kind yes. of like boiling the meat and calling it sous vide? <laughs> They're actually taking the roast beef water from like, <laughs> the, the, sh- like the shaver tray. Yeah, exactly. And they're just putting it in the bag. But really? <laughs> is this really happening? This apparently is really happening. You know, these states have very high white-tailed deer populations and big hunting traditions. And so they're like, oh, we're going to appeal to the hunters because apparently there is a mad crossover on the demo there. Uh, Arby's eaters. But isn't there a fatal flaw in this logic? Because if you're a hunter, presumably you have tons and tons of deer in your freezer (laughs) at home. You got it. Yeah. So so do you really want to take a break from venison to have a venison sandwich? (laughs) I think what it is is to maybe spotlight the culture or celebrate the hunting mm-hmm. tradition or something. However, the this might be a little bit of a boondoggle because the deer meat isn't it's farmed. It's farmed from New Zealand. It's not even what? It's not cold from the no. tons of deer in those states. I was already suspicious of this fancy pants sous vide, <laughs> but now, now it's we're un- flying this in from yeah, New Zealand. Anti-American. Uh-uh. All right. It Sorry, does feel Arby's. Really anti-American. You might have to take you. You might have to take that cowboy hat and pin one of the sides up or something like that. <laughs> make it jaunty. Why don't you just exactly. put, make it a beret? <laughs> no. Lauren Ober, thanks so much for the small talk. Absolutely, my pleasure. And now for Farm Ray's Cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history and give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a rainforest shrouded in a fog of booze. Evocative. Mm. Uh, first, the history part. This week back in 1979, some in the U.S. government experienced the apocalypse. Almost. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the annals of bad mornings, this has to take the cake. It was 3 a.m. on a Friday, and White House security advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski was awakened with eye-opening news. Defense computers were warning the Soviet Union had launched hundreds of nukes at the U.S. of A. America's Minuteman missile sites were put on alert. Fighter jets took to the air, and so did the so-called doomsday plane, from which the president would conduct a retaliatory strike. Brzezinski didn't even wake up his wife, so she could die peacefully in her sleep. But then, officials checked radar and satellite intelligence. Turns out, no nukes had launched. At all. U.S. forces stood down. The whole incident, to the brink of Armageddon and back, had taken under 10 minutes. The Pentagon's explanation for the computer error? That training software simulating a Soviet attack had been mistaken for the real deal. How? They weren't sure. Said one commander, quote, the precise mode of failure could not be replicated. When the Soviets learned how close we'd come to nuking them over a non-existent attack, they were not happy. But subsequent improvements to warning systems didn't prevent false alarms. There have been at least three more, the last one in 1995. That time, Norway launched a science rocket designed to study the northern lights. Russia mistook it for a Trident missile and considered nuking us. So that was the rather discomforting history. Now for a drink to go with it. On the line is Nate Windham, bartender at the Blue Star in Colorado Springs, Colorado, very near the command post known as NORAD, which is one of the sites where defense computers made their scary mistake. Nate, what drink did that story inspire? So what I did was I thought about if I'd gone through that situation, either if I was the guy at NORAD or if I was Brzezinski, how yep. would I have handled that after I finally hung up the phone and everything was relieved? Oh, man. And so my very first thought was a quick shot of something. <laughs> but at 3.10 in the morning, I thought a quick shot of whiskey was just a little too much. <laughs> yes. And here in Colorado, we're really we're well, well known for our Palisade peaches that come off of the western slope. And so every oh. year I do a peach shrub, which is a way to kind of preserve fruit and vinegar. It's like vinegar. It's kind of vinegar infused with fruit and fermented. That's right. That's right. So what I did was a shot of a whiskey that's actually made right here in Colorado Springs from Distillery 291. They do a great Colorado rye whiskey. Mm. So I did a shot of that with a little bit of Palisade peach shrub and a couple of dashes of bitters. And that's just shaking really, really hard over ice because I would imagine that your nerves are at end <laughs> yeah. and you're ready for something. You're, you um, don't actually have to shake it. You just hold it in your trembling hands. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then you strain that into a rocks glass with no ice. 
and you down it all in one tug. <laughs> and that makes you feel a little better that you just witnessed almost the apocalypse. That's right. So I do. I have to ask you, though, NORAD is one of the main command centers in the event of an attack, right? Yes. Does it strike you as scary that everyone knows where it is and that you live right next to it? You know, like, <laughs> A little bit, from time to time. I always wonder, you know, but, you know, I grew up during those nuclear years, and I always said that I'd rather be at ground zero than anywhere else in the country. I guess that's true, especially if you've got, you know, a bar full of liquor to calm your nerves. That's right. And, Brendan, Nate calls that the three- to seven-minute cocktail. Okay. Three minutes, because that's how long Brzezinski figured he had to verify the attack, and then four minutes to respond. That is incredible to think about. I can't even decide my order in four minutes at a bar. (laughs) That's why we're not security advisors. Yeah, lucky for the world. Uh, Folks, you'll find that and all our stress-relieving drink recipes online, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is UK pop star Rick Astley. All right. Back in the 80s, he scored a string of synth-backed R&B hits, including Together Forever. You remember that one, Rico? Yes. And another little number that decades later earned an unlikely second life as an internet prank. That's right. The idea is, of course, that you send someone a generic link, telling them that it points to something crazy or shocking, but when the user clicks on it, they actually see the 1987 video of Rick singing this. That prank became known as Rick Rolling, and it still delights me every time I get duped. It's been about a decade since that meme first appeared, though, and we thought it might be high time for a replacement. Mm. Rick took a break from his world tour to stop by our studios and help us out. Hi, I'm Rick Astley, and uh, let's talk about Rick Rolling for a second. Uh, if I could change the Rick Rolling thing, not that I want to, but if I could, and if I could come up with some other things, these are my choices. This is what I would Rick Roll you with now. Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy, and this is what's happening in your world tonight. First of all, I'm going to go for what I think is possibly the funniest scene in a movie ever. The scene from Anchorman where he plays the flute. You play jazz flute? I dabble. It's Will Ferrell. He's gone to the jazz club, and he's kind of asked, does he want to get up with the band and play? I'm not prepared. I really am not prepared at all. And he whips out his flute from his sleeve like a magician. This is a surprise, I'll tell you. <laughs> Guys, East Harlem Shakedown, E flat. And then he kind of fluffs it at the beginning, and you think, okay, so we can't actually play. Hold on. I'm not hearing it right. Hold on. And then he just erupts. We got it now. It's all right. The funniest thing, I think, in all of it for me is just how amazing the flute solo actually is. I don't know who played this solo, because I'm pretty sure Will didn't do it, but it's unbelievable. Uh. Let's go! And obviously he's studied that solo really well, because he does all the mannerisms and everything that you need to do to kind of make it look convincing. Musician friends and I, you know, we've kind of howled with laughter over that whole scene. It's just a great moment in film history, I think. 
My second one to rickroll people with. I would choose an absolute classic song, which, to be honest, I don't want to ruin by rickrolling, but it just puts me in a good mood whenever I hear it. Uh, it's Bill Withers' Lovely Day. When I wake up in the morning, love And the sunlight hurts my eyes Bill Withers is, for me, one of the most amazing artists that's ever lived. You could go from an age group of almost a toddler to somebody in their 80s or 90s and play them half a dozen of his songs and they would instantly know them. But if you tried to pick him out in the street, I don't think most people could do it. And I think that is incredible. That is the dream situation, that his music speaks for him. To some degree, I've had a bit of that as well. For the last sort of 10 years, I've been doing gigs again. You know, I'm playing sometimes on huge stages, a field full of 20,000 people. I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna. And yet, when I'm putting gas in the car on the way home, I could be jumping up and down on the bonnet of the car and singing Never Gonna Give You Up and people don't bat an eyelid. I really do appreciate it, for sure, because you get to do what you love to do for an audience as well but no one's going to bug you when you're buying your cornflakes. Okay then, my third pick to uh, rickroll you is Gladiator. I love a sword and sandals movie. This scene, when he takes off his helmet, he's in the arena, and the Emperor's come down because he wants to meet this guy, and he pulls off his helmet and he says, My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. I'm married, happily married, I'm a heterosexual man, but I'll tell you what, if I was another way inclined, I mean, come on. The Rick roll that we have at the moment is quite light, nothing wrong with it, but it's quite light, so maybe to have like a dark and heavy kind of, you know, I'll have my revenge in this life or the next. If I had my one last choice to rickroll people with, I think I would choose the last moments of a football game, soccer game, as you guys say. Manchester United, which is my team, against Bayern Munich, going back some years now, in the Champions League final. Bayern Munich scored first and they scored early. It's Basler. Oh, deflected it in! So I was on my feet from that moment thinking, we're not going to win this, we're not going to win this. And then um, Sir Alex Ferguson, who is actually, for me, the best coach in the world, he brought on two substitutes. And literally in the last moments of the game. Beckham into Sheringham, and Solskjaer has won it! The two substitutes have scored the two goals in stoppage time. I, I was literally wetting myself in our basement. I, could, I, I was, well, I'm almost doing it now. I was just speechless. Manchester United have reached the promised land. I could very easily be rickrolled by that clip any time, to be honest. And nobody will ever win a European Cup final more dramatically than this. I know this is a bit cheeky, but I'm going to do it anyway. It'd be nice to have one of my new songs to be used as the rickroll, to be honest. Sometimes I just don't feel like waking up. A song called Angels on My Side. Wanna stay inside my dreams. It's about all the people who've been there for me. My older brothers and my sister, my band, and it's kind of for them. Faith is for 
So maybe we could make this the new Rickroll. We'll see. <laughs> and I've got angels on my Rick Astley, his new album is called 50, and his ongoing tour is currently swinging through the UK. And folks, you can hear more from Rick and many of our other guests by subscribing to our podcast, Mm -hmm. via which you will get special behind-the-scenes bonus episodes. We've got one in the works featuring Rick talking about his favorite Rickroll spinoffs. Subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, coming up, Parks and Rec star Nick Offerman makes the connection between farm labor and the stage. And the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we'll hear from Emily Witt, author of the new book, Future Sex. And in just a few minutes, Hassan Minaj, correspondent for The Daily Show, tells us the story of the most stressful wedding proposal in history. Mm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And that'd be Nick Offerman. Mm. For seven seasons, Nick starred as Ron Swanson on the sitcom Parks and Recreation, delivering deadpan zingers through a lush mustache. Uh, He's also stolen scenes in delightful films like The Kings of Summer and Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, and recently landed a recurring role on TV's Fargo. He's also written a couple of books, but one of Nick's true passions is wood. That's right. For you city dwellers, that's the stuff that comes from trees. (laughs) Nick makes and sells furniture, canoes, and more. In 2008, he released an instructional woodworking DVD, and this week he released a book about it, complete with tutorials. It's called Good Clean Fun, and Nick, we're honored to have you on the show. Why, thank you. What a generous introduction. Yeah. You've had a robust life heretofore, and we wanted to make sure we have it covered. Well, I haven't been bored, for for which I'm thankful. (laughs) All right. Look, we know this is an honest-to-God book about building wood things because we've read it, (laughs) but how often do people ask you, if your woodworking side project is just a, it's a joke because they know you as a comedian. Well, it, it's interesting. You know, uh, my wife and I, Megan Mullally, the gorgeous goddess comedy legend of Will and Grace <laughs> and Tammy Two fame. Indeed. Your character, Ron's wife on Parks and Rec. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It's something that we countenance quite frequently. People years later say, oh, my God, I, I never knew Ron and Tammy were really married or... Mm. I just found out that Nick Offerman really has a wood shop. And, of course, in my reality, it's all perfectly obvious yes. because Ron's wood shop scenes were shot at my wood shop and Ron's canoes were my canoes that I built. And oh, no way. Yeah, I had a lot of woodworking on the show. And it's ultimately a compliment from the universe. Uh, anybody that has questions like that, what they're really saying to me is, I, I enjoyed your show and I just didn't read all the fine print. So I'm surprised to learn that you sometimes don't have a mustache or sometimes <laughs> actually uh, make tables. Yes. But I think part of the disconnect could be there's not a lot of woodworking these days. I think people assume that uh, someone, once they get on television, they're going to buy their furniture and canoe from a store yes. instead of instead of risking life and limb to make one. Literally, your limbs. Well, you, you make a very good point, and that logic is part of the American psyche. You know, once I quote-unquote hit it big, uh, then I can put my feet up and pay peasants to uh, <laughs> provide me with all the luxuries I, I require. Yeah. Why don't you do that? Well, the, the, that's, what, that's part of what the book is about. Yeah. I, my mom's side of the family are farmers, so 
I grew up in this in this community, this fellowship of people working hard together to create something uh, beneficial or medicinal for one another. Mm-hmm. You know, the neighborhood farm families, we would take turns uh, baling hay. So we'd all go over to Kenny Bolte's farm and bale his hay, and then they would all come over and bale our hay and so forth. And then I, I got into theater uh, in Chicago and again, it was the same kind of thing. It was a group of people working really hard for not much money, but a really rich recompense from the audience's laughter or tears or catharsis. So you see kind of a continuum between the two of those things. I think that people think of them as completely disparate now. There's the artist world and there's the world of the humble working class, and you find that there's a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. In hindsight, you know, I've been able to really notice it. And so... Not only is the book, you know, am I an evangelist uh, exhorting people to make things with your hands? To me, this book says, look how much fun me and my friends and my family have making stuff together. Some of it is dumb. You know, some of it's like a stick so you can reach the curtain to close it at night. But it's all, it all creates a much happier life. And it it's not something you do for money in this in this era of consumerism. Where, well, if you make enough money to go to the mall and buy enough pairs of shiny athletic shoes, you'll be very happy. And mm. uh, it was probably my my eighth or ninth pair of pink and yellow uh, <laughs> sneakers that I was like, well, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. It's not working. It doesn't make me feel like my childhood did. How, if at all, does woodworking influence your, your acting and comedy? Um you know, I'd have to, I have to take a couple steps back and squint to answer that question. Um, <laughs> that works on the radio perfectly. Yes, when I do, and now here, here I go. <laughs> I can hear the squint. Oh, my gosh. Things, things have grown fuzzy. That's uh, a hardcore squint, <laughs> man. In both disciplines, I try to keep my tools sharpened. I mean, it it comes down to, like, the more work and discipline I exhibit, the better the end result. And... and Hmm. I I always knew that, but I really I continue to learn from my wife Megan. She uh, is the most consummate badass professional I've mm-hmm. ever seen mm-hmm. in showbiz. She just works so hard for every little you know whether she's doing a big movie like this amazing comedy called Why Him that she has coming out uh-huh. on Christmas Day from from Fox. <laughs> nice job. Uh, in, in which she's terribly gorgeous and hilarious. Um, Unbiased review. It could be a big job like that, or it could be some little bit that she's doing for somebody's like comedy short. She treats them all with the same reverence because they deserve the same, same reverence. You're preparing something for your audience. It's so easy to think. When I was younger, I thought, oh, if you make it in showbiz, you know, you just like smoke a blunt in your trailer <laughs> and then they bring you out on set and you're like, what's up? I'm the funniest guy yeah. in the world. I'll be in my trailer if you need any more hilarity. And then you just cast And, you know, check. you come to learn that if you're going to succeed, you can't, you got to leave the blunts for after work. <laughs> Nick Offerman, his new book about woodworking is called Good Clean Fun. 
And be sure to stick around. Nick will be back later in the show to take a lathe and planer to your etiquette questions. You don't want to miss it, nor do you want to miss a single episode of our show ever, mm. ladies and gentlemen. A terrible situation you can avoid by subscribing to our podcast. And you can do that on iTunes or wherever podcasts are podcast. Next week, in fact, you'll get a podcast-only episode taped live on stage at the Now Hear This Festival in Anaheim, California, uh-huh. featuring special guests Davey Rothbart, the creator of Found Magazine, and advice from best-selling author Annabelle Gerwich, who cops to having once been part of a UFO cult. So she was just the person for the job. To eavesdrop. As senior correspondent for The Daily Show, Hassan Minaj spends his days skewering the political theater, but he's also doing theater of his own. His autobiographical stage show, Homecoming King, opened off-Broadway last fall, and it's now touring the country. Today we overhear a tale Hassan didn't work into that show about the best and most stressed day of his life. My girlfriend's name was Bina. It, well, it still is. She's my wife now. I am an Indian American male. And in our culture, when you propose to your wife-to-be, it is a family affair. So I had gotten my future wife's parents to approve of the agreement. And then after that, you're supposed to surprise your wife by proposing to her and giving her a ring. My plan was to take her to this place called Temecula, which is sort of Southern California wine country. It's just a short drive away from L.A. Take her on this like beautiful hot air balloon ride. And as the sun was rising, I would get on one knee and propose to her in the sky. So my girlfriend, Bina, she was part of the Ph.D. program at UCLA, and her focus was making emergency rooms better for veterans. It's a huge deal. She's a significantly better human being than me. I tell Donald Trump jokes for a living. So I wake up, Bina. It's like 3.30 in the morning. And I'm like, get up, get up, get up. It's, it's important. And she's like, what? what? Why? Like utter confusion on her face. You remember how like Friday's like our date night? This is early date night. And she's like, oh, okay. So we get to the vineyard. It's still dark outside. And Bina drops this bomb on me. She's like, Hassan, we need to get back to L.A. today. I have to present my thesis to my professor today. And I'm like, no. She was like, he just dropped it on me yesterday. I have to give my presentation today. He's leaving town. So now I have two things to keep in mind. One, I have to get her to say yes. And two, I have to get her back to L.A. in time for her final thesis. So we finally get to the hot air balloon. And the guy, Rob, who is the hot air balloon operator, he's blowing it up and it's beautiful. It's this big blue hot air balloon. He calls it the blueberry because it kind of looks like a blueberry. And this guy's a character like he had an unironic mustache and a mullet. Like those two things combined generally are problematic. He looks at me and he's like, hey, guys, I'm going to take you up in the air. I just have one question for you. Is there anything special you want me to uh, know about? And I look at Rob and I'm like, Rob, what are you doing? Like, shut up. Like, no, no, there's nothing special. Like, and he's like, okay, I've been doing this for about 20 years. So just you let me know. And I'm like, yeah, I'll let you know, Rob. But there's absolutely nothing I need you to do, Rob. Okay, we're good. We get into the sky. I can see sort of the pink sun break over to the mountains. It's it's really lovely. I look at Bina's face 
I can tell she's like really captivated with everything she's seeing. And we look across the way and we see this other hot air balloon rising into the sky as well. And it's red. And Rob takes one look at that hot air balloon and goes, damn you, strawberry. And I look at Rob and I'm like, what's the big deal? And he's like, oh, it's the other hot air balloon company. And we see this other couple across the way. And Bina, she taps my shoulder. She's like, Hassan, Hassan, look, 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 look. And the other couple in the other balloon, the girl has her mouth covered like, oh, my God. And they're both pointing and looking down. And I look down and I see this huge tarp unfurled over the vineyard. And it says, Erica, will you marry me? And I look up and the girl's crying and she's hugging the guy and she's nodding her head. And she's like, yes, yes, I'll marry you. And I'm like, strawberry. This guy has literally stolen my moment. I I, I can't propose to her now and be like, oh, by the way, like, uh, would you like the diet version of Erica's proposal? I have to think of a plan B because my future in-laws are going to call and be like, hey, how was the day? The balloon lands back down in wine country. I had rented out this villa in Temecula. I'm like speed walking in front of my wife with my phone out. I look like a jerk, by the way. I'm texting the front desk. I'm like, listen, you guys have to get a bunch of bouquets of flowers and set them up in the villa. We get back to the villa. There's flowers in the entire room and in the backyard. It looks beautiful. I get on one knee. I propose to my wife. She says yes. It's tears of happiness and relief and anxiety. And she's like, this is so amazing and and I love you and, and and I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. But I also would like to get my PhD. And I'm like, let's do this. Somehow through a miracle, we make it with time to spare. But she's like, I'm just starving and I haven't eaten breakfast. And I'm like, I got you. Literally outside of UCLA's campus is this brunch spot that Bina loves. They give you complimentary muffins. So we sit down, the waitress comes over and brings over this heaping platter of muffins. And I look into Bina's face and for the second time that morning, there's this look of utter joy and relief. And my mother-in-law's calling. Bina picks up. Hello? My mother-in-law goes, hey, Bina, how was your morning? Bina goes, oh, my God, mom, you will never believe it. Hassan got me muffins. And then I chime in. Hi, mom. I also proposed to her. And then my wife was just munching on a muffin, and she was like, oh, yeah, 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 that happened too. Mm, mm-hmm. That's how I'm proposed. Comedian and Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minaj, his one-man show Homecoming King is coming to D.C. and other cities this winter. I was Homecoming King. Nice. Yeah, something you didn't know about me. There you are. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, Emily Witt explores the brave new world of modern sexual relationships, and actor Nick Offerman returns with not fighting words. I always say hug before punch. Though it's probably okay to hug and drink punch Mm -hmm. for the holidays when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, a new song from Amber Kaufman of the band The Dirty Projectors, plus some rumination on orgasmic meditation mm. mm-hmm, with best-selling author and journalist Emily Witt. But first, 
Let's learn some manners. And here with that is once again actor Nick Offerman. You know him from Parks and Recreation, Fargo, and tons of other TV and film roles. We spoke to him earlier about Good Clean Fun, his new how-to manual about woodworking. And now, Nick, we present you with the raw material of our listeners' etiquette questions. Are you ready to carve into these? I, I will absolutely take a swing. All right. With All right, the hammer ahead. of discernment. Here is <laughs> Adam in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Adam writes, If I have a guest who repeatedly places a cold beverage sans offered coaster on a handmade reclaimed oak coffee table, how can I gently suggest, without first slamming their head into said table, <laughs> that they utilize the coaster I presented to them? Well, that is a very good question. I, I would first urge you to never uh, turn to violence as first resort um, to yeah. any question. I, I always say hug before punch. <laughs> P- perhaps uh, gather your guest in a bear-like embrace mm-hmm. and gently explain to them that... This would uh, would appreciate their love as much as it is loving us. Um, is it like a menacing uh, hug? Or? No, it's it's a genuine hug. I mean, okay. I'm I'm an absolute sissy teddy bear uh, who happened to be put in the in the body of a uh, a badass sheriff. Um, so people are people often think I'm being intimidating when I'm yeah. actually uh, suggesting. So you don't even have to decide what kind of hug it is. It's just going to be a little menacing anyway. By yeah, your... you kind of get both. I, yeah, I mean, I try to communicate like, hey, first of all, I love you. Second of all, you're really <laughs> me off uh, with your beverage <laughs> on my table. In that way, I feel like you embody America yeah. in a way. <laughs> well, there you go, Adam. This next question comes from Aaron in Greenville, South Carolina. Aaron writes, hello, Mr. Offerman. What is the acceptable length a beard can go down your neck? I usually stick with no lower than my jawline, but I've seen others grow it on their jowl, but not below that. What do you think? Well, uh, full disclosure, I'm I'm sitting here with a pretty fulsome face bush uh, (laughs) hanging off my mug. And so I can answer this question in two ways. Uh, My first sincere answer is, do whatever the hell you please uh, with your appearance. <laughs> that nice. mm-hmm. uh, is our right. It's a free country. Mm. Now, if my wife were sitting here with me, I would say, well, <laughs> let's think about this. Um, and, you know, but she actually is really generous. I have the craziest gamut of facial hair from clean shaven to yeah. like crazy big beards. And she really, uh, she really appreciates them. And as someone who has really meticulous, refined taste... This I I take as a great act of generosity on her part. But I mean, (laughs) if somehow you part of your life, like say you have a job where they're worried about your beard, then I would say either grow your beard however you want and find a new job Uh. or, uh, (laughs) you know, try to gently eke out a compromise. But always Mm, let your freak flag fly whenever possible. I'd also say, though, if your neck hair is longer than the beard hair near your cheeks, that's not acceptable. Really? A little bit serial killery. <laughs> okay. G- generally, that would be probably considered unattractive. That's but <laughs> I say the the ultimate barometer is how well you're getting kissed or not. All right. Mm. If you're getting satisfactorily kissed, then who gives a Who cares? <laughs> yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's a good etiquette guideline. Uh, here's Nalandri via Somerville, Massachusetts. Nalandri says, when a friend who has a tendency to burn anything and everything on the grill invites you over for dinner, is it rude to take over the grilling situation? Ooh, what a, what a thoughtful question. Right? <laughs> uh, my th- immediate thought is, 
You want to insinuate yourself into a position with them without encroaching on their territory. And mammals cooking meat over a fire is a very sticky yeah. situation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's rife mm -hmm. for violence. Uh, you don't want to lose a hand. <laughs> insinuate mm -hmm. yourself. Say, hey, I... I want to learn to do, you know, I want to have a cool party like you do. So will you teach me <laughs> your grilling ways? That requires the person to pay a lot more attention to their, their cooking. Mm -hmm. And you could I even like front load. You could say, you know, I read a little bit about it. Uh, I have this digital meat thermometer um, I've been carrying around with me. <laughs> yeah. But I have, I have no master to, to show me how to use it. And so mm. trick them into mm. uh, into cooking more sensitively. There you go. Tricks. Lie to them mm -hmm. and trick them. And bring along a thermometer just in case. So this question comes from Dan in Milton, Vermont. Um, I feel like a lot of these questions are coming from good woodworking places. Yeah, absolutely. Hotbeds of deciduous lumber. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot from the desert. All right, Dan writes, here's a scenario. While entertaining, a friend and I decide to enjoy a glass of scotch. Upon lifting the bottle, I find that there's only enough excellent scotch for one glass. Do I offer it to my friend and fill my glass with a more inferior libation, or do I suggest that we both partake of a different beverage? Oof. Hmm. Well, first of all, what an excellently worded contribution. <laughs> yeah. uh, hats off. Public radio yes. in action. And what an excellent set of questions. I'm, I'm tickled pink with, <laughs> wow. your, uh, with your listeners. You're welcome. I have a very solid answer to this conundrum. Um, in Japan, you traditionally, whether you're drinking scotch or sake and beer, those are the favorite uh, libations yeah. on the island of Nippon, you always, you never <laughs> fill your own cup. You fill your neighbor's cup. Ah, yes. Mm. And politely, they in turn keep yours full. First of all, this guarantees that everyone gets as drunk as you do, which is important <laughs> in uh, mm -hmm. international mm -hmm. negotiations. That's right. <laughs> but more importantly, it's to me, it is a great metaphor for life. You know, um, I've, I've written about in L.A. traffic, it's really easy to become infuriated because everybody in L.A., you know, it's the city of dreams. And so presumably... 97% of the people on the road are chasing a dream of some sort. <laughs> Real fast. And maybe 98%. So my technique is always figure out how long it's going to take me to get someplace and then give myself an extra 15 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you can say to everyone, I understand you're chasing your dream. Go ahead. <laughs> Instead of trying to jockey and be in that rat race, and I'm telling mm -hmm. you, it made my life so much happier. Sure. And mm -hmm. by the same token, always give your friend the good scotch. If you yeah. have other less good scotch, you still have a glass of whiskey, yeah. dumbass. Like, <laughs> if, you, if you have whiskey to drink... You're sitting pretty. Do you know how many people wish they had a glass <laughs> yep. of garbage whiskey? <laughs> when in doubt, always treat your friend before yourself. Serve the scotch. Give yourself a 15-minute dream cushion. Yes. Nick Offerman, thank you for telling our audience how to behave. Uh, my pleasure. I mean, it's, it's an ongoing project. I, I still am learning every day myself. Nick Offerman. His new book is called Good Clean Fun, Misadventures in Sawdust at Offerman Woodshop. And folks, if you have an etiquette problem that needs to be repaired, send it to us and we'll run it by someone totally qualified. Or at least famous. That's right, to help you. Send it to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Invest 
Investigative journalist Emily Witt's work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, GQ, and more. But right now, she's making waves with her nonfiction book called Future Sex. Yes, when Witt was 30, she found herself single and questioning whether she'd find love. So she decided to explore the modern state of sexual relationships. The book details her experiences dating online, on the set of a porn shoot, embedded with a polyamorous couple, and beyond. Now, obviously, the conversation you're about to hear deals with sexual themes, so forewarned. Mm. When we met, I first asked Emily what she learned about sex that she didn't know before. Hmm. Well, I mean, one thing I, I always say, there's nothing new about sex. What changes is the story we tell about it, the language we use, and how we define our relationships. For me, it was worth it to look at my own sexuality, examine the mythologies, the words I use to describe it, the roots of my expectations, and understand that if I went and tried some of these new possibilities enabled by the Internet and by a more forgiving culture that's more aware of sexual diversity— I wouldn't lose myself. I wouldn't become a crazy person. I don't know. I don't know what I thought. (laughs) I guess it's like a kind of way, you know, you you actually are judging other people by by limiting yourself. One of the things you explore in detail is online dating, which is something you begin to do when you find yourself single. And this practice has become mainstreamed to Mm -hmm. a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And I found this interesting. One of the reasons is this idea of the clean, well-lit room. Yeah, The clean, well-lighted space has been used as a shorthand for a certain way of marketing sexuality to women. It was meant as a contrast to the kind of Times Square porno movie theater, seedy, dark spaces. Like Screwed Magazine and this kind of, yeah. And a pattern that had been consistent since the beginning of internet dating was that the more that you led with sexual imagery and kind of traditional male sexual desire, I don't know, women in their underwear or something, the less likely women were to sign up for the site. You know, when Tinder launched, it was successful in part because despite popular opinion, there's actually nothing on Tinder that indicates that it's a hookup app or yeah. anything like that. You can um, exchange photos. It's um, yeah, kind of got a white backdrop and it's kind of cutesy language in their ad copy. Yeah. And then just looking at my own way of using these apps, I became curious why it was that despite these technologies being used to find sexual relationships, why that needed to be hidden for me to be comfortable on there and for many other women to be comfortable. And why was I trying to discuss my favorite books with a partner and never talking about sex overtly in my profile. And I think at one point you describe it as uh, this is like being at a restaurant or what is it? At, at a- uh, yeah, a restaurant where nobody's talking about the food. Yeah, exactly. It's- but is talking about the weather. And then somebody would offer me some food <laughs> and I would ask him if he had an umbrella. I think I took the <laughs> metaphor a little too far, but... Once I sort of shifted my outlook and started privileging sexual attraction as really the main thing I was looking for, it really changed my experience of dating, I have to say. So once you acknowledged that idea for yourself, how did it change your approach to online dating? Well, the main thing that happened is I started meeting people much more easily. Something about being sexually conscious, I didn't need to go online anymore. Somehow in my life, 
having done this process of inquiry for myself just made it so much easier to ask people out and to get asked out. It just happened. So in another chapter of this book, you explore the idea of polyamory. So first of all, explain what polyamory is and then tell us the origins of that word. Sure. So polyamory means that you believe and live the possibility of having more than one partner at the same time. I liked the origins of the word because it's a really good illustration of how an idea goes from really the fringes of culture, from people that a lot of people would define as crazy, can go into the (laughs) mainstream really quickly. So this word was coined by a woman named Morning Glory Ravenheart Zell, and she was a neo-pagan. She and her husband had an open relationship, which they wrote about in the Journal of the Neo-Pagan Church of All Worlds, and Morning Glory used the word polyamorist, and now you see it on Tinder all the time. (laughs) Uh, And you follow a polyamorous couple in the book, and you look at their trials and tribulations. You explore all facets of the modern sex landscape, porn, chat rooms, a lot of risque stuff. What was the most uncomfortable thing that you covered? Um, I mean, the orgasmic meditation. The orgasmic meditation. So at one point in the book, you join this group or you go to I go to some classes. I'm trying to figure out how to explain it so it's safe for radio, but (laughs) it's it's basically a modification of a certain tantric sex practice. They do a lot of group work where you sit there and you have to name your sexual desires and have somebody describe all the flaws in your physical appearance, all this kind of um, human potential movement stuff. Mm. So that was uncomfortable for me, not merely because it was having to put myself out there sexually, but because I'm not a joiner. I'm extremely skeptical of a lot of self-help movements. Yeah, that was the part that made me more uncomfortable. The The cult vibes more than the sex stuff. Yeah. Well, at one point you participate. Yeah, I participated. I suspended my judgment of the groupthink proselytizing aspect of it, which is very real, and and just let myself listen to some of the things they had to say. And honestly, I yeah, I came out of it really grateful about the experience that I had because um, it just taught me a lot about that I was experiencing sexual desire with panic and anxiety, you know, all the things I said earlier on internet dating about how I realized I was sort of hiding myself and... Um, Hmm. meeting the world on slightly false terms. Well, although this book is called Future Sex, it's really about a search for human connection and the different way individuals seek those connections out. And maybe I'm just a romantic, but love seems relevant to that process, and yet you don't discuss it at all. Was that on purpose? Maybe that's just an old-fashioned notion that I cling to. Yeah, it's kind of now that the book is out, I realize I kind of hid that part of my own story and it's funny because I actually recently did fall in love. That's great. And it is changing my perspective on a lot of things. But I also, you know, I'm kind of glad that I wrote a book that in some ways the question of the book is how to live a sexual life when you don't have love. Um, how do you feel connected? How do you have sex? Um, how do you meet people without that as this lightning bolt compass that tells you everything to do. Yeah. Um, you know, many of us go through years of our lives in in the sort of outside of love 
state. And, you know, what I realized from the book, you can still have intimacy with people. You can still feel connected to the world. You can still have sex and in a way that makes you feel less, you can feel less alone, I guess. And that was really important to me to discover. Emily Witt. Her new book is called Future Sex. It's earned rave reviews, and rightfully so. You'll find it in bookstores and, of course, online. Of course. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. The show would not be possible without producer Jackson Musker and our associate digital producer, Christina Lopez. Our intern is Kathleen McGovern. Christian Coons assisted this week. He also works on the great podcast Song Exploder, which we encourage you to check out. Our engineer was Bill Lance. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Amber Kaufman's stunning voice and gorgeous harmonies are a big component of beloved indie group The Dirty Projectors. She recently announced a forthcoming solo album called City of No Reply. Here's the first single. It's entitled, appropriately, All to Myself. Bon appétit. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. Nice. Yeah, nice work. Here's an excellent show, man. Um, are you going to pour me any of that scotch? No. Did you not hear what Nick Offerman said before? He also builds credenzas. I'm not doing that either. You're mean. <laughs>